Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, as we read verses 1 to 12. Hear now the word of God. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please help us today to read your word and not to be selective. Help us to hear your whole word completely and give us your spirit so that we aren't only hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Make it so in the hearts of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our day that we live in has sort of a love-hate relationship with this passage, doesn't it? Uh, People seem to love this passage on the one hand, right? Especially the first verse. I think for a lot of folks, they would say, you can stop at verse 1. The rest of it's fine, I'm sure, but verse 1 is where I want to live, right? (laughs) And part of the reason why verse 1 on its own, isolated from the rest, is so popular is because we live in a day where Moral judgments are despised. Moral judgments are hated, except the moral judgment that moral judgments are immoral. Or some moral judgments, right? And so if if you make a moral statement that someone disagrees with, and if they know you're a Christian, they'll say, Aha! Judge not, lest you be judged. They know that Bible verse. Um, They're less interested in seeing their own judgments cease than they are in getting Christians to cease having moral judgments. And so people love this text when it's convenient or when it matches the need of the moment. But see, we also live in a past, in a, in a day that I said it has a love-hate relationship with this. This is also a day that hates what Jesus says here. Uh, case in point, Jesus at the conclusion of the passage says, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. So the, the ethos of the modern culture, and I, I might say this is something really clearly pronounced in much of our political culture, the ethos of the day is do unto others more than they have done to you, right? 
get them back. Settle the score. Uh, whatever the enemy does, do it to them and then some. Right? Keep ramping it up. Keep making it more than the pain was the last time. That's the moment that we live in. So when you get to a passage like whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. There's sort of a bit of a head nod. I hope that my neighbor heard that, you know. Um, we love what Jesus says when it's convenient. We hate it when it cuts back against our plans and against our own ideas of the world. There was a Peruvian general and president named Oscar Benavides. He said it very well. He said, for my friends, everything. For my enemies, the law. Um, right? Two measurements, right? Two standards, depending on who you are and who you're talking to. And so I guess my point here as we start looking at this text is that we are very strange creatures indeed, right? Um, Jesus says things that we are attracted to and repulsed by almost simultaneously. Uh, fallen hearts are very often drawn to things that can be very easily twisted, and this is that kind of passage. This is that passage that we are drawn to and repulsed by and that we try to twist as much as we can. And what that means is that we have to be really careful as we look at the text this morning. We need to see in our own heart our own tendency to take this and maybe not see it for what it is, especially if it hurts, especially if there's, there are pain points in our own hearts. And so if we misunderstand the passage, here's what happens. We're going to find Jesus contradicting himself, or else we will at the very least find ourselves incapable of making any judgments at all if we want to be consistent. But if we don't take to heart what Jesus is saying, then it means a church that hasn't internalized, hasn't taken in what it really means to live as members of the kingdom of God. Both of those approaches are ways of dodging the hard penetrating look that Jesus wants us to take at our own hearts today. Um, you may have been surprised at how big our reading was, 12 verses, and you might have thought, why are we doing all of these at once? These feel like separate texts, separate, separate sermons maybe, um, but these 12 verses are not a series of disconnected proverbs. Uh, we, are, we are reading these all together today actually because they form a whole unit and they form a whole argument for Jesus. The, the overriding principle of verses 1 to 12, if you wanted to know why are we reading them all together, is because these 12 verses are saying that we should live in every respect as we would want others to treat us. Just as we would want to be judged by a fair, even standard, so we would want to receive what we ask for. In, all the same, in the same way, all of Scripture teaches us that we should judge fairly and not hypocritically when we deal with each other. And so today, let's follow Jesus' argument here. In point one, we'll begin with his discussion of judgment. In point two, we'll try to understand this idea of casting pearls before swine and how it belongs in what Jesus is saying here. And then third, we'll look at the oft-quoted, rarely practiced golden rule. So judgment pearls, golden rule. That's going to take us all the way from verse 1 to verse 12 today. Um, first, Jesus speaks about judgments, how to make them, and what kind of standards to use. Uh, verses 1 to 5 are surely well known to most of us. I want to read it once more before we talk about it. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus begins with, by saying, judge not. Right? This is the verse. This is the verse that modern people know so well. They say, they say judge not. Make no judgments. Have no opinions. Certainly have no negative opinions. Uh, Jesus has disarmed you, Christian. If <laughs> If you make moral judgments about anything, you are a hypocrite. You don't listen to Jesus. You should listen to all of Jesus, right? If you say that something is right or wrong, you're disobeying Jesus. That is the way that the modern person prefers to read this passage. And it actually is true. If, you've, if you isolate these two words, judge not, if you isolate them from the entire remainder of the Bible, the remainder of the passage, and you, you looked at them completely on your own and did not know what the surrounding verses were, you would be left, perhaps, with that difficult conclusion. But let's dispense with that. The world twists scripture. That's not a secret. Obviously, Jesus is not take, talking about making any kind of judgments. He, this passage itself is a judgment, right? He's talking about the standards of judgment that we use and the way that we just naturally and unevenly will apply our judgments to others. See, we tend to be harsh with others, and who are we gentle with? Us. <laughs> we're harsh with others. We're gentle with ourselves. This is an old practice, and Jesus is calling it out. Jesus is telling us that when we, we make judgments, we should use the same measure, the same standard that we would want applied to us. Um, this is true of me. I suspect it's the same with you, but you will have to ask yourself in your own heart if this is the case. But we are usually very ready to have a charitable, charitable spirit toward ourselves and our own attitudes. And we are sometimes surprised when other people don't see us in the best light that we certainly see ourselves in, right? Uh, we put ourselves in the best possible light at, at, we have loads of excuses for ourselves. We know why we did it. If only everyone could understand our point of view. Um, we're very understanding of why we did it. We have a whole narrative that we have woven as to why we made the decision that we did. Even if no one else sees it, at least we know, right? Uh, even when we know we have done something objectively wrong, even when we know that we have actually committed a sin, what do we do? We bend over backwards to explain ourselves to ourselves so that we can at least live with ourselves. We do that. When we hurt someone else, we might see the hurt that we've done. We might see what we've, how we've treated this other person. But what will we do? We'll highlight our motives. Say, my motives were good. I was trying to do the right thing. We'll want others to do the same thing for us as well. And sometimes we're frustrated when they don't treat us that way, right? See, I, see what I was trying to do. Don't see what I did. See what I tried to do. See what was motivating me, what was moving me. See, we're so quick to show grace to ourselves. Jesus is, is taking aim not at those who have moral views, not at those who have moral positions, He's taking, if you wanted to put the right word on it, he's, he's taking aim at the hypercritical. 
He's taking aim at the hypercritical here. Are you a hypercritical person? I'm not asking you if you have hypercritical people in your life. If I asked you that, you would say yes, probably. Um, are you a hypercritical person? If you don't think you're a hypercritical person, can you be a hypercritical person? <laughs> um, uh, hypercritical people are, are well-intentioned. I've talked about this already. We see our good intentions, right? Uh, they're often driven by a desire for control. They, they think that they're helping other people, right? Hel hypercritical people are helpers. If only everyone listened to the little niggling instructions that we have for them, their lives would run so smoothly. If only they could all see it. Uh, their lives would be better. Their, their lives would be more efficient. They would live more wisely. Uh, they, they, they want the world to be better. And so how do hypercritical people govern? They govern by strict oversight. Strict oversight of others and the behavior of other people's lives. Uh, you find out whether someone's hypercritical by volunteering to help them make Thanksgiving dinner. That's the, short, that's the shortcut to doing the test. Um, very stressful thanks, Thanksgiving type things happen with a, a hypercritical personality. Um, some people are not like that. La ladies, by the way, if a man uh, uh, helps you in the kitchen and keeps an even keel and helps you even with Thanksgiving dinner, you ha it's a, objectively a law that you have to marry him. Uh, that, is, that is a smooth player right there. Um, Jesus is not talking about objective morality or right and wrong here. God's law is very clear. It's objectively true. What God says isn't, question, isn't in question. We are talking about how we pick each other apart and look to find fault. The faults are there. Jesus is concerned with how hard we are trying in order to find the faults. How quick are you to find the faults in others, right? Problems in how they're, they're living. I, I'm not exempt from this. You can ask my family, but please don't. You can, but don't. Um, this is an area where I need to become more holy too, right? Um, last week's sermon on anxiety was for me, and this week's sermon on being hypercritical is for me. Um, you get me in the right mood, I can become surgically critical of others. Um, this is wrong. We shouldn't be like this. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Whether we're perpetually picking people apart or whether we are just trying to make the world a better place, the degree to which we could pick others apart is infinite. It's infinite, right? The more you look at your neighbor for flaws, the more I guarantee you will find them. And if you look for flaws under the flaws, you will find even more. Not just why did he do, you not just what did he do, but if you start asking the question, why did he do that? Why did she do that? Guess what you will find when you look? You'll find sin. <laughs> you'll find faults. You will find whatever you are looking for. Um, uh, the closer you look, the more you scrutinize, the more obvious the problems become. And truly, if that is how you live and approach others, there will be no end to your quest for dissecting the neighbors. And so in the name of virtue and, and righteousness and, and goodness and civilization, for crying out loud, 
whatever term you might employ, Jesus is very concerned that you will use those things as an excuse to pick the people in your world to pieces. Jesus says, fine, but start with yourself. See, as soon as as we become determined to pick the world to pieces, we have to do it to ourselves. Jesus is saying that. In fact, he says, examine yourself first. You want to help these people around you by pointing out their flaws, pointing out their problems. Jesus says, you have problems of your own. And then he wants us to know it is as ridiculous as the guy with a tree branch sticking out of his face saying, let me help you with the splinter. Um, Sometimes, so here's the thing about a joke. It's not funny if you explain it. Uh, this is one of my, my, my kids will get joke books, right? And then they'll come up to me and they'll read me the joke and then I, I won't laugh at it usually. Um, I, I don't play at jokes. I take my comedy very seriously. And so, and so it must be funny. You won't get a, a pat laugh out of me. Like, see, you guys are very nice. You're nicer than me. Uh, if they bring me a joke, they, I will not laugh, and then they will explain the joke to me, and I will tell them. It becomes funnier the more you explain it. It's kind of like that with this. What Jesus is doing here is hilarious. You, you can imagine Jesus as he's teaching, and he gets to this part, and he's talking about people having flaws of their own, and then he presents this ridiculous image of someone with a tree branch in their face helping someone with a little splinter You could imagine these people on the hillside laughing their butts off, right? This is funny. He's a funny guy. But when I say it, it it doesn't sound believable. You just have to understand this is not the way a rabbi talks. He's funny. Here's the thing about, about laughter. Laughter does something. It helps us internalize things that we really believe deep down. And, and it often makes it less painful for us to be confronted with our problems when we, when we laugh. laugh. Laughter somehow lets something in, even as it lets something out. And, and Jesus, I think, is giving us permission to laugh at just how ridiculous we are. He's telling us, you are ridiculous. You need to at least learn to chuckle about how inconsistent you are. And when we judge others with that harder standard, we really are being ridiculous, and we really do deserve to be laughed at, and we certainly deserve to laugh at ourselves. Do you see it about yourself? Are you willing to see it about yourself? Are you willing to see that you have a hypercritical attitude that never ends? Jesus wants us to know it. He wants us to see it about ourselves. If we won't, then we will continue on as those hypercritical people who are just trying to help everybody else around us. Now, second this morning, Jesus offers the principle of the pearls. Verses 1 to 5 are about not judging a member of Christ's church. He's talking about, about dealing with somebody in your orbit who's, who's a follower of Jesus. And he's saying, he's saying, don't go over your brother or your sister with a, a fine-tooth comb, right? He's being critical of the hypercritical. And instead of being hypercritical, Jesus is is showing us that members of the kingdom are meant to be gracious. We're meant to be charitable to each other. We're meant to see the the best in each other, not the worst in each other, which we can always find if we want to look. But this, this leads to a natural question. What about those who hate the gospel? What about those who are enemies of the gospel? This is a natural question that rises from all of this, and you see it in verse 6. He says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
one of the reasons you know that he's not saying what the modern world thinks he's saying in verse 1 is because in verse 6, he calls some people dogs and some people pigs. What an insult, (laughs) especially in a Jewish culture, calling people pigs, saying that somebody could be a pig at all is just the deepest, most offensive name that someone could be called. And, And Jesus is saying, look, don't judge according to these strict hypercritical standards. But then you get to verse six and he's like, let her rip. You know, (laughs) he's saying there are some people who are dogs. There are some people who are pigs, right? Up to this point, he's been saying, what should your attitude be towards my people? And the answer is generosity, charity, overlooking faults. But then in verse six, verse six is about an outsider. This is, it's about an outsider, not just an outsider, but somebody who's an enemy of the gospel and who is not operating in good faith. They're not seeking the kingdom. They're not interested in the truth. Um, what should your attitude be toward that person, some outsider who is violently opposed to the gospel? Jesus wants the disciples to know that not, not everyone's going to be receptive. Not everyone's going to be ready to hear what you have to say. Jesus has just loaded us up with, with pearls, right? <laughs> He's loaded us up with holy things. Um, if you're a Christian and you know the scripture, then you are walking around with those every day. And, and Jesus is saying, look, he knows that you're going to run into some people who don't just not believe, but they hate it. They hate what you're saying. They, they, they want to see the gospel suppressed, reduced, eliminated. He wants them to know that, Christian, what you have to say is, is going to be something that some people violently hate, and he wants us to discern the difference. Uh, an equivalent, if you want to think of who would dogs and swine be in Scripture, I think one example would be the Judaizers. Right? You have these people, they're, they're following Paul from place to place. Paul goes, he labors, he, he preaches the gospel, lives are changed, Souls are saved, families are redeemed, children are baptized, and then what happens? Uh, These people come and they are determined to upset the very message that Paul has been preaching. And, And Jesus says, these are people who would attack you. That's the language he uses. This is somebody who would attack you. Um... He isn't just talking about run of the mill unbelievers. Now, if you read scripture and you know somebody who's not regenerate, somebody who is an unbeliever, scripture has incredibly sharp, hard things to say about what unbelievers are like by nature. And in fact, if you know yourself before you came to Jesus, there's no end to the negative, hard, oppositional language that you would use about your own heart. And yet Jesus is still distinguishing here from the person that you certainly should be sharing the gospel with and somebody who is going to trample what you give them. Um, Think about this. He's not saying to be ungracious to all unbelievers because Jesus' whole ministry was him talking to people who didn't know him and preaching the good news so that they could come to him. And he's indiscriminate in how he preaches it, right? He doesn't just go, you look like... You look like you could be a Christian. I'm going to talk to you. Instead, he's indiscriminate, right? He just goes to everybody. He talks to anybody. 
Um, and his, his plan is that our lives are supposed to be spent blessing unbel- other believers, but then also inviting others to join us as well. Right? He is not saying that we withhold the gospel from people or that we don't speak the truth when we have opportunities. I need to say that because I think that Christians, naturally speaking, we have a laziness to us. And we would love to hear a Bible verse that says, make sure you don't tell the, bio, tell the gospel to somebody. There's something inside of us that would be, they would treasure it, right? I'm an introvert. I got my get out of jail free card, right? <laughs> That's what we're looking for. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, I think, that open enemies of the gospel will trample the grace that you show to them. And so you have to be wise enough to know the difference between an honest inquirer and a malevolent enemy. Uh, If you struggle to know what this looks like, um, I want you to see how Jesus puts this principle into action in his life. He does it at least in two episodes I could find, and I think he probably does it in other places too. But look at what Jesus does in Matthew 26, 62. He's, He's being questioned by the high priest. He's being questioned about the false witnesses. And he knows that his answer is going to be misused because of the maliciousness of his accusers. So what does Jesus do when they start to grill him? He remains silent. He won't say anything. There's no answer that he can give that won't be twisted by them. Or think of actually our New Testament reading this morning from Luke chapter 20. All right? They want to know, by what authority do you do these things? And he doesn't give them the answer. He doesn't give it to them. Now, if you have this instinct, I have this instinct inside of me that says, no, he should just be open and say everything. And I think that this passage today helps us understand why he would remain silent. Because he would have been throwing his pearls to swine, right? He would have been throwing holy things before dogs. Think of another place where Jesus refuses to cast pearls before swine. In Matthew 21, 23, Jesus is in the temple. The chief priests quiz him about his authority. Uh, he quizzes them, right? He says, I'll ask you a question. Uh, where did the baptism of John come from? And you've heard the answer already. He knows they're not operating in good faith. And so he tells them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Uh, you see it in Luke 20. You see it in Matthew 21. Jesus knows that his answer will not only be trampled, but it will not be engaged in good faith. See, Jesus is someone who understands what it is to not cast pearls before swine lest they trample them underfoot. He expects us to do this as well. He doesn't just say, this is my prerogative. I can remain silent when it's appropriate, but you have to speak at all times. I don't think that's the case. How can we put this into practice? Um, It's not always easy. I think most of the time, we should not assume we are talking to someone who's going to trample the grace that we show them, right? Uh, I have been in conversations with people where I could tell they were not looking for answers. They were looking for an excuse. Maybe you've had those conversations as well. Uh, Much of the world is this way. If you look at Jesus's ministry, the vast majority of it was him liberally casting pearls of wisdom and grace wherever he went. And sometimes they were trampled, for sure. He was attacked. He was spoken dishonestly about. Often his pearls were trampled. So Jesus is not telling us, hey, look, the goal is to make sure that none of the pearls are wasted. (laughs) He's not telling you not to take chances. He's not telling you uh, to default towards 
being kind and gracious with people. But when Jesus is dealing with malevolent individuals, he often does not take the bait. I think if in doubt, we should be gracious. If in doubt, we shouldn't be afraid of being trampled. We shouldn't be afraid of being attacked. I think that's Jesus' posture in life, right? We should give an answer for the hope that is within us. We should be open. We should realize that we may be mistreated. In fact, we should expect to be mistreated and surprised when we aren't mistreated. But we should also know that there is a place for the wisdom to simply be silent. In the age of social media, I am afraid most Christians have lost that skill of simply being silent. We need not speak all the time, every time, in every situation. I'll say one more thing that the silence Jesus calls for isn't usually the case. I think we should generally default to speaking God's truth openly and faithfully and showing the sort of grace to others that God has shown to us. If in doubt, do that. If in doubt, take the chance of being trampled. Um, we should be generous. We should be gracious and truthful. But we should also be wise to when that graciousness might be trampled. Jesus wants us to respond with wisdom. He wants us to be able to read the room. Now, third this morning, we have what's commonly called the golden rule. That's verse 12. But we need verses 7 to 11. Because verses 7 to 11 are part of the golden rule. Verses 7 to 11 are the argument Jesus is making for the golden rule. So I'm going to read verses 7 to 11 so that we can see the argument Jesus is making here as we close. He, sa he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Um, notice verse 12 begins with the word so. So is another word for therefore. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a word for the conclusion and application of an argument. It is a connection with what came before. And so Jesus is saying, look, what I've said in verses 7 to 11 is the argument for the thing that I say in verse 12. So that means that functionally verses 11, 7 to 11 are Jesus' argument for why you should do to others what they wish that they, that, you would do, that they would do to you. That's his argument. And so you could boil his argument down like this. This is what God does. Look what Jesus says about the Father. Uh, he says, in essence, look, you can go to him. You can bring your needs to him. You can ask. Because he's your Father, he will answer you. He won't leave you hat in hand. And he won't re respond to your prayer with disregard. So he, he's telling us what God is like in verses 7 to 11. Jesus is not saying you can demand anything from God in your own human selfish wisdom. Uh, selfish prayers, prayers that treat God like a genie, prayers that use God rather than asking him to use us. Don't expect God to give you what you ask for when you do that. 
Um, notice, notice the things Jesus illustrates the, the child praying to the Father for, right? It's a prayer for bread. It's a prayer for fish. These are prayers for daily necessities, not daily luxuries. A child who loves his father does not go to his father and sincerely ask for a Ferrari, right? He asks for a bowl of, of cereal, right? He asks him to help him get the orange juice down. He doesn't ask ridiculous questions that are self-indulgent. He asks for the things that he needs. So Jesus is not saying, come to God, the genie. Everyone gets three wishes, right? But he is saying, if you come to him as a child, asking for the sort of things a child asks his father for, how can he say no? Right? He's your father. He, he loves you. He cares for you. No, notice that Jesus says that the father gives, what the father gives is good things. That's the language he uses. He says the father gives good things. And in our human wisdom, we have our own idea of what would be good for us. We have our own idea of what is good. We have our life mapped out, perhaps. We really know the way we'd like things to go. And oftentimes, what is good in our own heart and mind is not what is good in the father's heart and mind. In fact, I will say, it usually doesn't. They're usually not the same. You should expect that he will, however, give like a father who loves you. And he will give good things that you truly need. And trust him to know what is good. So there's the, the first premise of the argument for living the golden rule. He says, God is like this. He gives us what is good. He gives us what is wise. He gives us what he knows is best for us. And wouldn't you like God to treat you that way? To give you what is best. Right? He starts, in other words, with the nature of God. He starts with who God is. Jesus is talking to people knowing that they have experienced God's grace in some way, right? Even if there are unbelievers in the crowd, unbelievers have, ha, have experienced God, God's grace because God causes the rain to fall in the just and the unjust alike. Uh, all human beings living in this world know God's grace in some way. Some of them know his grace in, in a saving way, uh, where not only their life, but even their soul is secure because of what Christ alone has done. Um, others know God as the one that brings rain and the one who brings provision and the one who keeps them alive. Um, these people also know God's goodness, but they don't give him glory for it. That's what Paul says. They don't give him glory for it. But all of us know the goodness of God, whether we are in denial about it or not. And Jesus sets that goodness before us and he bases his argument that we should treat others the way we want to be treated on that, on God himself, on who God is. And he says, if he is that good and that is the grace that we live by, then it is the grace that we should give as well. Look how he, look how, how it, look how he does it as we get to verse 12. Verse 12 says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's not just summarizing verses 7 to 11. He's summarizing the whole law. You could see, I hope, why all 12 of these verses as a single unit were, were read this morning. Because this verse is closely tied back to the first verse that we read this morning. It's not... 
that we shouldn't judge. It's that we shouldn't judge with, we should judge with the same measure that we want applied to us, right? Verse 12, verse 1. He's telling us to judge the way we would want others to judge us. I hope that this starts to feel like more of a coherent tapestry here instead of a segmented series of aphorisms and wise sayings. Instead, he's making an argument for what the Christian life looks like. He gives us better than we deserve. Therefore, we judge generously too. We should judge with charity. We should judge with, judge with generosity. Big-hearted grace, not stingy with grace. We should judge the way we would want someone else to judge us. Remember what I, I said before. I said, I said, we are ready and we are quick to judge ourselves generously. We're so quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Jesus is saying, good, and do that for others too. Do that for others too, because that's how you want them to treat you, and because that's how kind God is, right? He's basing it all on God and who he is, and he's saying, because he's been that kind to you, because that is the kind of father that he has been to you, then the same grace that you're being called to give is the same grace by which you live. He's tying it all together. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that the, this teaching of Jesus is offensive, and so it gets twisted by people, right? What Jesus teaches us here is offensive because it reminds us of our flaws, which we don't want people to remind us of, and we don't even want God to remind us of. So it reminds us of our flaws. It reminds us that we have them along with everyone else. When we see the stink on someone else, we oftentimes forget that we have it on us, right? And so he's saying, look, we don't get to say, well, my mission in life is more important. So the hypocrisy and the judgmentalism and the double standards are okay. My task is noble. Jesus is saying, no, you are a sinful person, just like the person that you're standing over. Your sin's may be different, but, but by nature, your heart is dark too. Spurgeon says this. Um, he's speaking about the offense of the cross. I'll just close with what Spurgeon says here. He says, there's another offense, which is a very sore one, and the world has never forgiven the cross that offense yet. It will not recognize any distinctions between mankind. The cross makes moral and immoral persons go to heaven by the same road. The cross makes rich and poor enter heaven by the same door. The cross makes the philosopher and the peasant walk on the same highway of holiness. The cross procures the same crown for the poor creature with one talent that the man with ten talents shall receive. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you discipline us by your word so that we not only are eager to receive grace but so that we are especially eager to give it you tell us to be careful how we judge to be careful how we scrutinize to be careful of how critical we are of others would you remind us by your spirit the next time we are tempted to harshly criticize another that we also live by your grace Help us to extend grace to others even as you have given us far above anything you would ever ask of us.
It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Mm-hmm.